Our gospel reading this morning is from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, she was always, like many of us, tempted to stay in bed on cold mornings. But this morning, she fought the urge, because she knew she had work to do. And she also knew that she'd promised her grandson to show him the family business today. So, after a good breakfast, she grabbed her tools, and they headed to the vineyard. It was crisp and cool. The sun was only beginning to rise over the hills. The ground was damp, and so was the air. They could see the dew was still frozen to the grapes. It was a perfect morning for pruning. Why do we cut the vines, Grandma? We're cutting them, Jimmy, so that the good grapes can grow. Do you understand? I think so, said Jimmy. Well, think of it this way, Jimmy. We need this vineyard to produce as many grapes as possible. And we want the grapes we produce to be the best grapes possible so that we can make good juice and good wine for people to drink. The dead branches hurt both the vine and the other branches because dying branches take nutrients from living ones. If we don't cut the dead wood away, the whole vine might die. If we don't prune the vine, there will be no vine. There will be no grapes. There will be no, no new wine. Does that make sense? Yeah, Grandma, it does make sense. And it really does. It really does make sense except when the branches are us and God is the gardener. And that is exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 15. Jesus says, God cuts off every branch that bears no fruit and every branch that does bear fruit, God prunes. And this is an, an analogy I've always found a bit troubling. It's difficult, you know, to shake this image of a divine gardener ruthlessly working through the vineyard of our lives, cutting on and cutting off branches who are actually 
people. It's difficult for me to imagine God cutting off anyone, especially friends from around our country and around our world who, even on their best days, might not be considered faithful followers of Jesus. I think of those friends when I hear this story, and I'm deeply concerned about whether or not they will make the cut. But even more, when I read this story, it causes me to revisit some of my childhood fears about God. Because I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I was less concerned about God cutting on and cutting off others and much more concerned about God cutting on me. And this was often exasperated by church leaders who were quick to remind me that one, God loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. And two, I needed to be good. I needed to be good because if I wasn't good, our great and loving God might punish me or even worse, cut me off. Sometimes that second message was more implicit than explicit, but I still felt it. It was still there. So I struggle with these words. I struggle with these words because I spent way too much of my early life wondering whether or not I was going to make the cut. How about you? Have you ever wrestled with anything like that? I've wrestled with things like that in varying ways many times in my life. Like I remember when I was in the seventh grade, desperately wanting to make the cut in another way. I just started junior high, and all my friends were trying out for the junior high basketball team. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I love basketball, and I had played countless hours of basketball in my driveway and, and in my neighborhood, and I'd even played in a little dribbler league with other kids in the community, but I'd never really considered myself much of an athlete much of a really great basketball player, and I don't think that anyone of my friends, including me, really expected me to make the team, but I wanted to. So I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced each and every day after school. I was determined to do my very best, to give my very best effort, so at the very least, I wouldn't be embarrassed in front of my friends and my coaches when the tryouts came. So when the big week came, more than 100 students showed up to try out for 15 spots. And I wanted one of those spots so badly. I desperately wanted to make the cut. Most of us have found ourselves in the midst of a similar story. We've tried out for sports teams and dance teams. We've auditioned for bands and school choirs and cheerleading squads. We've interviewed for any number of jobs. We've risked rejection, putting ourselves out there hoping and praying for acceptance, to be accepted by certain teammates or bandmates, to be wanted for a certain job or by a certain person. We've longed to be chosen for someone else or a group of someone else's to validate our existence by telling us that we belong, by telling us that we matter to them. At some point in our lives, for good or for ill, we've all put ourselves out there in hopes that we might make the cut. And I wanted so badly to make the cut. Tryouts lasted for three days, 
And at the end of every day, the coach would post a list of the, the players who still remained on a wall outside of the gym. And if your name was on that list, you'd made the cut. So every day I would, I would gather after school around other friends, peeking over their shoulders, looking at the list, trying to find my name. And each and every day what I found was that my name remained. And at the end of all of it, I'd made the team. I made the cut. I couldn't believe it. And in some ways, I never really did believe it. I never... I never actually embraced, I think, that I'd actually been good enough to make that team, that I'd actually made the cut. I'd made the cut, but I never really played like I did. When game time arrived, I would get so nervous that I, I couldn't pass well or dribble well or shoot well because I was always worried about what the coach thought or what the fans thought or what the other players thought. I, I really didn't play well at all because... I never really thought I was good enough to be on that team. I never really accepted the fact that I'd made the cut. And I do wonder if, if any of you have ever had a similar struggle. If any of you have ever struggled to believe that you were really enough. Enough for your family. Enough for your friends. Enough for your job or your spouse or your church. I wonder if any of you have ever struggled deep down with whether or not you were really enough for God. When you read verses about God cutting some and pruning others, do you struggle? And not just about others, but in spite of all you've been told about the love of our gracious God, do you ever wonder, will I make the cut? I wonder if the disciples ever wondered about this. If they ever wrestled with whether or not they had made the cut. I wonder if when Jesus was telling them about a holy gardener who was cutting and pruning the vineyard of humanity, if any of them wondered if they would indeed make the cut. Surely they, they did. But if they had wondered, they didn't have to wonder for long. Because Jesus told them that, that some would be cut and others would be pruned. And then in verse 3, he leaned in and shared with them a secret that I have often missed. You have already been pruned, he said. You have already been made clean by the word that I have spoken to you. So that if they were wondering, they didn't have to wonder anymore. If they had been afraid, they now knew they had nothing to fear because Jesus leaned in and let them know that they had already made the cut. And I'd like to think that Jesus wasn't just speaking to them. No, I'd like to think that Jesus was looking at them and beyond them, that he was looking simultaneously into their eyes and into our eyes, that he was gazing deeply into eyes across the world and across time, gazing deeply and lovingly into all of our eyes and letting us all know that we belong, that we all belong in the garden of God's love. I'd like to think that these words are living words. 
and that the living words of Christ are coming to us right now, this morning, across time and space, so that every person who has ever struggled to believe we belong might hear the risen Christ saying to them this morning, Beloved, whether you believe it or not, you belong. You've already made the cut. And of course, ironically, the ones of us who need to hear these words the most this morning are probably also the ones who have the most trouble believing them. And there are others of us who have no trouble believing them because we're certain that we are loved. We're confident that our faith in Christ is enough. We are certain that in Christ we will never be cut on or cut off. And ironically, that is also only partly true. Because making the cut doesn't mean there won't be cutting. No, actually, it means there will be. The path to becoming our best selves, we know, is often paved with struggle and discipline and sacrifice. It's, it's often difficult to see that kind of character formed in us. This is something, by the way, also that every good mentor knows full well. Every great mentor knows that the path to struggle requires sacrifice and discipline and hard work, this kind of shaping, including but not limited to one of the greatest cinematic mentors of all time. And this one is for Emmett Drumgoul, who I found out at some point over the past year is actually a state champion in karate, right? Something you may not have known about Emmett. And I think there was also some connection to the karate kid, right? Yeah. So, one of the greatest cinematic mentors of all time, Mr. Miyagi. Right? Now, some of you are, know, I'm taking for granted that many of you know about Karate Kid. Karate Kid's getting some renewed attention these days, mostly because of the very soap opera-y Netflix Karate Kid sequel, Cobra Kai, which is sometimes so bad it's good mainly because of the 80s nostalgia, but, but it's, it's not the original. And mostly it's not the original because there's no Mr. Miyagi. So we'll go, that's right. So we'll go back to the original. And for those of you who haven't seen the original, here's a little background. Daniel Russo, a.k.a. Danielson, was the new kid in town and was constantly being picked on by an evil teenage gang of karate bullies known as the Cobra Kai. Mr. Miyagi was a handyman in his building, a Japanese handy, handyman from Okinawa, who was pretty good at karate. And because of that, Daniel's son asked him if he would teach him karate so that he could defend himself against the evil Cobra Kai. Mr. Miyagi agreed to the training with a tournament in view, and the training began. First, Daniel washed and waxed about 50 of Mr. Miyagi's cars. Wax on, wax off, remember? Then he painted Mr. Miyagi's house. Then Mr. Miyagi had Daniel paint his rather large fence. Then he finally capped off his training by having him sand his incredibly large back deck. And you don't have to see the movie to know that Daniel's son wasn't very happy with this training. What on earth, after all, 
Could sanding floors, painting houses, waxing cars, and painting fences have to do with learning karate? It seemed like Mr. Miyagi had just been using him. So Daniel got fed up, and then he blew up. He threw down his tools. He screamed at Mr. Miyagi, and he began to walk home. But before he could get away, Mr. Miyagi stopped him. Danielson, Danielson, he said, show me paint the fence. Show me paint the house. Show me wax on, wax off. Show me sand the deck. And until that moment, none of it had made any sense. But it made sense now. Mr. Miyagi had been building Daniel's will, his muscle, and his muscle memory through pain and sweat and the agony of hard work. Mr. Miyagi had been forming Daniel's heart, his strength, and his character so that Daniel's son was now only about one crane kick away from a karate championship, and he didn't know it. All he knew was that his training had been hard, and it hadn't made any sense. The disciples also knew that their training had been difficult and that oftentimes it hadn't made much sense. Jesus was telling them now that they had already been cut, cleaned, and pruned by his word. And, I, and I'm sure in some ways this was no surprise to them. After all, it was the word of Jesus that had called them to leave their homes and their families and their friends. It was the word of Jesus that had been cutting away at their pride, their egos, their selfishness, and their ambition. It was the word of Jesus that had been cleaning, pruning, and cutting away at them as he'd continued to lead them toward his cross and preparing them to take up their own. It was the word of Jesus that had been calling them toward a good life, though not an easy one. Grandma, Jimmy asked, how will these scarred up branches make it through the winter? Won't cutting them kill them? No, Jimmy. Cutting them won't kill them. Now, I know it seems strange, but it's actually because we're cutting them that they will live. But not all of them, Grandma. Some of these branches will die. You're right, Jimmy. Some of them will. In fact, the ones we're cutting off right now are already dead. But Jimmy, here's the thing. Even those branches, the ones that are falling to the ground, when they fall, they become part of the soil, part of the life of this vineyard. Because see, Jimmy, in this soil, in this vineyard, even those branches have a future. Well, at the end of the day, Jimmy knew he still had a lot to learn about the family business. But he had learned one thing that day he was sure he wouldn't forget. He knew his family's vineyard was in good hands. That through summer and winter, springtime and harvest, 
Jimmy knew their vineyard was being watched over by a skilled and loving gardener. And he knew that while she was watching, she was also cutting. Cutting so that branches might remain. Cutting so that the best grapes might grow. Cutting so that every living thing in her vineyard might have a rich, full, and abundant life. Not an easy life, but a good life. More on that next.